This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today is March 26th, 2023, and we have Darlene Young with us today. Uh, for purposes of tracking with the Sunday School program, the scripture reading that we're working from is Matthew 13 and 14, Luke 8, John 5 to 6, and Mark 6. I'm Chris Kimball, conducting the day on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Um, Linda Hoffman Kimball of the board is with us today as well. Um, Rebecca Deschweinitz, who is usually with us, uh, is out with COVID. Um, Linda will offer the opening prayer and, and will otherwise be part of the program today. Michael Austin is handling the technology in the background. We're using the, our webinar format on Zoom, as you're familiar, and we're running a live stream on Facebook and recording this program for your information. Um, uh, here is the dialogue ad. In the first issue of the journal, Father Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. In the 21st century, we are continuing with the Dialogue Journal, um, now making available all 55 years of archived issues, all of our digital offerings, including this Gospel Study series, podcasts, and other features. And it's now all entirely free for online users. This means moving away from a subscription model and seeking uh, a fund a sustaining fund to carry the journal and associated offerings into the future. And we ask for your help in continuing the work of the Dialogue Foundation and the Dialogue Journal into the future. You can find out more at Sustaining Dialogue at GiveDialogue.com, GiveToDialogue.com. Um, today, I'd like to, um, before the opening music and, and prayer, I'd, I'd like to uh, introduce our participants today. Um, Darlene Young, our teacher, is the author of two poetry collections, Homespun and Angel Feathers, which, uh, including Angel Feathers, which won the Association for Mormon Letters Award for Poetry, and Here, which is forthcoming um, daily and momentarily, I think, a recipient of the Smith Pettit Foundation Award for Outstanding Contribution to Mormon Letters and BYU's Adjunct Faculty Publication Award. She teaches creative writing at Brigham Young University. She has served as poetry editor of Dialogue and Segala. Her work has been noted in Best American Essays and nominated for Pushcart Prizes. She lives in South Jordan, Utah. Um, Rebecca Call, I will say a word about, but Rebecca will sing the opening song um, and she will give us some introduction and explanation about that song. Uh, Rebecca is a PhD candidate in religious studies, critical comparative scripture at Claremont Graduate University. Her research interests include the Hebrew Bible, the ancient Near East, uh, women in scripture and gender studies. Rebecca's dissertation focuses on alternate readings of help meet a phrase describing Eve in Genesis 2, 18, 20 and the implications of those readings on gender roles in the creation account. I think you'll recognize that, uh, that work in her notes about uh, Eve's lullaby, which she'll be singing. 
Uh, Alixa Broby, who is here, we, she will have a role in the lesson and offer closing prayer. Alixa spent portions of her childhood in the Netherlands and in Ghana. She has a BA in English from Brigham Young University, where she won the Ethel Lowry Handley Poetry Prize in 2020. Her work has been published or is forthcoming in the Blue Marble Review, Sagala, Inscape Journal, the Albion Review, the Susquehanna Review, the Palos Review, sorry, the Exponent 2, Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, and others. She has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and is currently a law student at Brigham Young University. Um, we will hear from um, Rebecca Call, Ease Lullaby, and I'll invite Rebecca to tell us about this music, and then, and then in, uh, Linda Kimball will offer an opening prayer. Thank you. Uh, so this is an original song. I wrote the lyrics and the music. And when I was writing the lyrics, my, my goal was to produce a piece of art that connected with multiple other religious and scholarly conversations. So Eve's lullaby is influenced from multiple sources. Uh, the first and primary source is Hebrew linguistic elements from the text of Genesis. Uh, for example, I reference the, the Hebrew words for man and woman, which is ish and isha. Uh, as well as the meanings behind the names of Eve's three sons that are mentioned later on a text, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Um, there are also references to ancient Near Eastern temple symbolism, Jewish Midrash, Mirsi Eliada's theory regarding sacred time from his book, The Sacred and the Profane, The Nature of Religion, um, and Latter-day Saint scripture, the Book of Mormon and Pearl of Great Price. So all of these elements melded with my own personal impressions in order to create the lyrics of Eve's Lullaby. And uh, when I wrote the music, I was hoping to capture feelings of mourning, gratitude, comfort, and love. Never before was a burden. 
We paid the price, we bought of the mall, but license like bread, no founded in death. Those who to see the secret things hidden, or know the unknown, will fruit lay unbidden. Fear not, my child, set this past before you. Step into the dark nights and rest in my arms. Fear not, my child, set this past before you. Step into the dark nights and rest in my arms. Our great and loving God, we thank thee for the Sabbath. We're grateful for the change of pace it brings and for this opportunity for us to consider deep and spiritual things. We are grateful that we have been invited to step into the darkness with thy light. We ask for thy blessing on Darlene as she speaks that her <clears throat> generous and beautiful uh, talent and spirit will uh, intrigue us and call us to our own uh, creation. We ask for thy blessing on this day, that we may seek thee, that we may find a way to make this day a sacred day. And we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, thank you, Rebecca. That's gorgeous. I'm so grateful you would share that. Um, I was given a lot of chapters to cover with a lot of stories. Um, I'm not going to try to cover them all, don't worry. Uh, one that I will not be spending a lot of time on, um, but I wish I could, is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And I just wanted to make one point about it before I start. To me, this story is about trusting that our offerings are enough, even when they don't appear to be that Jesus can take what we have and what we're willing to offer and touch it and bless it and distribute it in a way that it does good. And even maybe often we don't get to see the results, um, but he asks us to do it anyway and to trust him that it will come to good. And this um, is meaningful to me right now because I am not a New Testament scholar. Um, and I've been a little bit intimidated about this assignment because I know there are probably many in the audience who know quite a, uh, a bit more about um, these chapters, about the history and the scholarship. But I'm trusting that um, the Lord can take what I have to offer today and bless it and distribute it maybe in a way that um, could bring good to you. Um, I've been praying about what I can offer from my particular experience and background I do have a testimony of Jesus Christ and um, a testimony that um, we can 
um, explore these stories and use them to um, strengthen our ability to interact with him. And uh, so I've been thinking about maybe there's something from my background that I can bring that might invite new insights for you. So I am a creative writer and a teacher of writers. And I've been asking myself, is there something that we can learn from the way an artist approaches a subject in order to create art about it that might help us maybe interact and learn from the stories? And that's why I invited two other artists to join me. We heard from Rebecca talking a little bit about how she came to create a piece of art um, based on the things that she was studying. And a little bit later, we're going to hear from Alixa about um, a, a approaching a gospel subject in order to write a poem about it. So I'm looking forward to that. So let me share my screen. I'm hoping that you're seeing my slides. Are you seeing a, a slideshow? Great. Okay. Just getting this ready to go. Okay. So the first story that I want to spend some time in is the story of the healing at the pool of Bethesda. So let's just read this first. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. So um, I knew I was going to be teaching this story, and I went to the Payson Temple for the first time a few weeks ago. And as you sit in the chapel, um, the painting that you face right in the middle front center is this one. It's called Pool of Bethesda by Alvin Veselka. Um, and it was amazing to me to see this just as I was preparing to teach. Um, as I looked around in the chapel, on the right side of the chapel was this painting, also by Alban Veselka, Arise, Take Up Thy Bed and Walk. And on the left side of the chapel was one. It was not this one. Um, sorry, let me, I'm going backwards instead of forwards. It was not this one, but one similar to it, um, Christ Healing the Blind Man. It uh, The one that was in the temple, I couldn't find online, but... Um, it's similar in that it showed the moment of Jesus touching the eyes of the blind man that he's healing. So these were the three pictures that I saw. Um, I'm wondering if you notice what I notice that's different about the one in the middle. Um, the two on the sides are showing the moment of healing, but the one in the middle is not. It's showing the moment a few minutes before when Jesus is speaking to the man that he's about to heal. And I found myself wondering, why did the artist choose this moment to paint instead of the moment of the actual healing as we get in the other two paintings? 
And I think that Veselka was interested in the moments before the healing, and he chose that for his subject because, uh, for one thing, that's where the tension is. And tension always makes art better because we live in a world of tension, and we recognize this. We know that Jesus is about to heal this man um, in just a few moments, but I think we recognize that place of waiting. Those of us who believe Jesus spend most of our lives in the same situation that this man is in. And Jesus in the pic- is in the picture with us, and we're glad and we're hopeful, and we even believe that he's going to bring healing to whatever the physical thing or emotional thing is in our life that's ailing us, but we are also waiting. So I want to take this as a theme for the first part of my lesson today, um, talking about the role of suffering and waiting um, for healing in the life of the believer. I think sometimes we don't do a favor as we talk together about miracles in our community. We love to bear testimony of the miracles that we've seen in our lives. And um, we sometimes are told by the Spirit that a certain miracle that we have encountered came as a direct result of a certain kind of obedience. And I think it's great to bear testimony of that, but I think we have to be careful about the implications of our rhetoric. Sometimes we might do a disfavor when we connect miracles so closely with specific obedience. I think Elder Christofferson was speaking about this when he said, some misunderstand the promises of God to mean that obedience to him yields specific outcomes on a fixed schedule. They might think, if I diligently serve a full-time mission, God will bless me with a happy marriage and children. Or if I refrain from doing schoolwork on the Sabbath, God will bless me with good grades. Or if I pay tithing, God will bless me with that job I've been wanting. If life doesn't fall out precisely this way or according to an, unex- er, to an expected timetable, they may feel betrayed by God. But things are not so mechanical in the divine economy. We ought not to think of God's plan as a cosmic vending machine where we, one, select a desired blessing, two, insert the required sum of good works, and three, the order is promptly delivered. It is essential that we honor and obey his laws, but not every blessing predicated on obedience to law is shaped, designed, and timed according to our expectations. We do our best, but must leave to him the management of blessings, both temporal and spiritual. So this is kind of confusing and messy because we do have scriptures that seem to point out that we can be blessed for being obedient. Sister Francine Banyan points this out in her essay, A Theology of Suffering. She has this long list of scriptures that contradict, but here's just one example. In Deuteronomy, when thou art in tribulation, all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shalt be obedient unto his voice. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee. But then we get David um, in the Psalms saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And of course, we recognize these words um, because they were quoted by Jesus Christ on the cross. And I'm sure there are many people in the real world, but also um, in the scriptures, who did feel forsaken at times. I imagine Abinadi may have felt that way as he burned, or um, the women and children that Alma and Amulek were forced to watch burning in the fire may have felt somewhat forsaken, and they were very obedient. 
Elder Holland commented on this. For every infirm man healed instantly as he waits to enter the pool of Bethesda, someone else will spend 40 years in the desert waiting to enter the promised land. For every Nephi and Lehi divinely protected by an encircling flame of fire for their faith, we have an Abinadi burned at a stake of flaming fire for his. And we remember that the same Elijah who in an instant called down fire from heaven to bear witness against the priests of Baal is the same Elijah who endured a period when there was no rain for years and who for a time was fed only by the skimpy sustenance that could be carried in a raven's claw. And even this man we've been talking about who got healed at the pool of Bethesda, we know he waited, I think it said 38 years. Um, so it's a really cool story that he was healed. But um, I want to think about the time, 38 years, when um, he needed to make sense of his situation. And we need to be careful about simplistic um, reading of the scriptures in terms of the connection between obedience and um, the relief of suffering. The fact is that regardless of how obedient you are, you're going to experience suffering in this life. And so remembering that it's not just a side effect of life, um, but that it is actually an important part of the plan, I think may be helpful. So um, Paul said, we are joint heirs with Christ, if it so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. I think this is implying that we can assume that we're going to suffer. Um, it's part of the plan that we experience pain. Without doing so, we could not become like God. We know, for example, that our Heavenly Father is a celestial being, and um, but we wouldn't claim that he does not suffer and that he does not weep with us and um, and experience sorrow and pain. And we want to become like him. So it's unreasonable to expect um, a lack of suffering now or even in the celestial kingdom just because we're righteous. In heaven, we know that we chose God's plan, which included pain and suffering, not Lucifer's plan, which did not. So Sister Benyon goes on to say, like Christ in the desert, we apparently did not say we would come to earth only if God would change all our stones to bread in time of hunger. We were willing to know hunger. Like Christ in the desert, we did not ask God to let us try falling or being bruised only on condition that he catch us before we touch ground and save us from real hurt. We were willing to know hurt. And Elder Holland, who was um, in part quoting Neil Maxwell, said, One's life cannot be both faith-filled and stress-free. It simply will not work to glide naively through life, saying as we sip another glass of lemonade, Lord, give me all thy choicest virtues, but be certain not to give me grief, nor sorrow, nor pain, nor opposition. Please do not let anyone dislike me or betray me, and above all, do not ever let me feel forsaken by thee or those I love. In fact, Lord, be careful to keep me from all the experiences that made thee divine. And then, when the rough sledding by everyone else is over, please let me come and dwell with thee, where I can boast about how similar our strengths and our characters are as I float along on my cloud of comfortable Christianity. So, okay, maybe we can accept that there's supposed to be pain in the world, but then what do we do with all of the suggestions in the scriptures that we pray for help? For example, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. 
For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Seems to imply that the Heavenly Father is so eager to give us the things that we want and need, including healing. And so we have to make sense of this, and we have to decide what it is we really are supposed to be asking for. And so I wonder, how does changing our perspective um, about the role of pain and suffering change what we should be asking for or praying for? Now, I don't think it's wrong to ask for a blessing that would remove our suffering. I think it's wrong for us to ask only for that and to have our faith depend only on receiving that particular thing. So in addition to asking for relief, there are other things that we can pray for. For example, we can ask for and work towards help in increasing our faith in the Savior as opposed to our faith in a particular thing. Faith, for example, that we might be healed. Um, President Brigham Young said, My faith is not placed upon the Lord's working upon the island of the sea, upon his bringing the people here, nor upon the favors he bestows upon this people or upon that people neither upon whether we are blessed or not blessed. But my faith is placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and my, the knowledge that I have received from him. So we can um, try to include or, or make a little shift in our praying so that we can increase in faith in Jesus and that his plan is working for us. We can ask for help to see things differently. So I might ask how our pride and self-interest keeping me from revising the story I'd like to tell about my life and about how it should go. I spent um, a time, a few years, with a, a long illness that was undiagnosed um, and that I didn't know whether I'd see the end of. And um, I did some thinking about, you know, in all of my praying for an end to that, um, about why it was I wanted to be healed. And I, I made a list, and I felt like they were good reasons. And a big one was that I wanted to be used in this life. I wanted to do good. But I realized um, that if I really thought about it, I could do good even from my bedside. There were lots of ways that I could serve and do good in the world. So I kind of felt like I needed to repent a little bit about um, the self-centeredness of my focus of telling the Lord I wanted to to be of use in the world, but only in the way that I wanted. Um, and I also needed to repent a little bit about caring so much about what other people thought of me, that that was the sort of laying up for myself treasures on earth instead of in heaven. We can also ask for help in using suffering to become more like God. So in Alma, we read, <clears throat> because of the exceeding great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened and many were softened because of their afflictions. And so much that they did humble themselves before God, even in the depths of humility. So what can you do to increase the odds that your suffering will work to soften you instead of harden you? Adam S. Miller says, we're all going to get sick and grow old and die and lose everyone and everything. In my view, learning to handle that loss in a way that's productive rather than paralyzing is the point of practicing a religion. It's the point of showing up at church on Sunday, 
of reading your scriptures. Religious practices open up a little bit of space between you and the world, space that gives you some freedom to move in relation to it. We have a good name for this space, for the work of opening up that kind of space in our tradition. It's what we call consecration. So I think it's important to think about how can I use this suffering to make myself softer? And um, how can the suffering be consecrated for my good? And here I think um, Adam Miller's talking about making sure that we continue the practices that bring us um, closer to the Lord and to other people. Doing the work of practicing a religion is one of the ways to make our suffering a softening process. So as you read this story, I want to know how, where you put yourself, where do you see yourself in the story right now in your life? Are you a person who's awaiting healing right now, stuck in the moment right before healing comes? Or maybe you're a watcher nearby seeing salvation come for someone else and not you. Or maybe you're one of the disciples, maybe still a little bit skeptical, but daring to hope and thrilled to watch your leader take risks and break paradigms, such as Sabbath customs. Maybe you're a Pharisee prone to criticism of those around you, or even looking for ways that believers around you fall short of the laws that you hold most dear. Where is the poem that you would write, and how does thinking about this invite a greater interaction with the Savior in your life? So I'm going to shift perspectives a little bit and talk about the story from a different angle. What can we learn um, by imagining that this poem or story um, is about Jesus or from the angle of Jesus or someone who is watching someone else suffer and wants to help? What can we learn um, from this story about how to help the people around us who are suffering? Sister Ann Tanner um, wrote about this in an article in the Ensign in January of 2011. The things that we can learn from what Jesus did at, by the Pool of Bethesda to help us minister to others better. And she had five things. Um, the first one is that Jesus looked for the one in need. So this whole story took place at the time of Passover, and Jesus could have been busy concentrating on his personal preparations. But he took time and looked around and took a minute to pay attention to the person who was suffering. We can listen without criticism. Jesus took a minute to allow the man to explain um, in his way what his need was and was not critical of that. The people around us who are suffering don't need advice and they don't need platitudes. They need to be listened to. I know for me that I find my urge to um, speak in platitudes to other people comes from a desire to relieve suffering. But I think also underneath, there's a little bit of selfishness that comes from my discomfort at seeing them suffer. So I want to quickly amend the situation um, instead of just taking time and listening. Um, Jesus gave anonymously when people asked the man who he healed, um, who is it that healed you? He didn't even know a name because Jesus had kind of left the scene. Um, and we should do that too. Jesus understood and acknowledged grief and suffering. We know that at uh, the time when Jesus raised Lazarus, 
he took a few minutes before doing so to weep with Mary and Martha. Such a fascinating thing to me. Um, he knew momentarily things were going to get better, and my inclination would be to rush and fix. But Jesus took a few minutes and wept with them um, and acknowledged their grief and shared in it. And finally, we should follow up. We know that later um, Jesus sought this man out um, and talked with him again, and we should do that too when others are ailing. So at this point, I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to turn the time over to Alixa, um, and she's going to talk about another miracle that Jesus did and the way someone might enter the story there. Thanks, Darlene. Can you see the slides? Okay, perfect. So I'm going to be talking about Jesus calming the storm in Luke 8, and I'm going to be talking about the process of drafting a poem I read about this and comparing that to the process of receiving revelation. So the first thing I do when I have a poem to write or I'm trying to seek an answer based on scripture is start with the text, usually reading it a few times, um, possibly out loud, to notice maybe certain rhythms, certain repeated words, or repeated images. So I'll start off by reading the scripture. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over onto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. So the next thing that I do when I'm uh, writing a scriptural poem or seeking revelation is I'll turn to other texts and see what insights they can give me. So, for example, I might turn to the Joseph Smith translation, um, which here translates Luke 8.23 as, and they were filled with fear rather than water and were in danger. Another resource I like to use is Bible Hub, um, which provides a variety of translations of the Bible and also has this thing called Strong's Concordance, where you can click on a particular word and it'll link you to other scriptures that use that same word. So here, for example, we can see that um, when Jesus is commanding, he uses the same language is also found when he's commanding unclean spirits to end, exit a body. And then I also like to use the research resource scriptures.byu.edu, which can link you to a variety of different church talks based off of scripture. So here we can see that Luke 8 um, has talks about miracles, finding peace, and about, about faith. Oh. The next thing I'll do is I'll turn to other art. Um, I especially like visual art, but music, film, other things can also help me find inspiration for writing and for revelation. So here are some paintings by Delacroix, by Freiburg, by Coco, and by Rembrandt. Um, images help me when I'm drafting poetry. They help me to think about facial expressions, physical space, movement. So here I might notice how the different artists de depict how the ship is leaning 
the way there is light, where Jesus is, the physicality of the waves tossing the boat around, the size of the boat, whether it's a larger boat or a small fishing boat, um, Jesus's position as he's sleeping. Once I do all those things, I begin the process of writing, which also has some similarities to receiving revelation. So I try and go to a quiet, inspirational place. I love to go to the Museum of Art on BYU's campus and be around the art. Um, that feels like a holy place to me. I'll brainstorm a variety of images, brainstorm language. I'll write a draft. As I'm drafting, I'll often find that I can't think of the words I want to use. Um, so instead of abandoning a project, I'll put brackets around words, which I found sometimes happens with Revelation as well, is we don't find a complete answer to what we're looking for, but we'll want to continue searching rather than just giving up and walking away. I'll use a thesaurus to think of synonyms. Um, I'll revise. I'll reach out to other people, get feedback, and revise again. Similarly with Revelation, going to a quiet, inspirational place, um, trying to use my own head and then inviting in the spirit to help me come up with an answer, reaching out to trusted individuals to talk to, and then not being afraid of those gaps, but really leaning into them and um, continuing to think about an answer. So as I was thinking about drafting the poem, here are a couple of thoughts that came to mind um, regarding the specific scripture. The language of going to the other side feels like language about passing from this life into the next one, which made me think about moving from imperfection to perfection. I thought about the storm as a metaphor for inner turmoil, stress, and anxiety. The language, master, master, we perish, seemed to parallel a little bit the language, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? made me think about the loneliness we might feel during trials or right before death. Um, a big theme in this scripture that I found um, in the talks were talked about Jesus proving his divine godliness via performing this miracle. And then reading out loud a few times, I noticed that there's a lot of alliteration naturally in these verses with the wind and the water. Um, so I started brainstorming similar words like waver, wait, want, won't, and will. So in choosing to draft this poem, I decided to focus on the alliteration. I think that um, similar to Revelation, if we start off with a perfectly strong idea of what we want the outcome to be, sometimes we miss an opportunity to be surprised and uh, receive answers that can be more interesting than what we necessarily wanted to. So instead of starting off with an idea, I wanted to start off with just some repeated sounds and see where they took me. So I'm going to read this poem and then talk about um, a few potential takeaways from it. We wait as winds and water rise from toe to waist. We watch the skies weep gray and sneeze thick chunks of ice. The wind whips salty, wet and wild. My God, the waves, they wash me blue. I wade through worlds to get to you. My wants, they wilt. My woes grow wings. My whistling wails touch everything. Wake up, wake up, and wipe us dry. He wakes and whispers to the sky. The wind, it slows, the waves, they still, the world, it all bends to his will. We watch in awe, all hushed and then, it dawns how bright and firm his hand. He stilled the sea and stopped the gusts, yet chooses still to walk with us. And so, just like with Revelation, which is an ongoing process, writing poetry and finding takeaways is also an ongoing process. So the things I'm going to talk about are some things that I did on purpose while drafting it, and are, but some of them are things that I look back on and can see as poetic techniques that are found in this poem. 
So one of the things is that there's a lot of alliteration. Um, there's some internal rhyme. There's the whole poem is mostly written in iambic tetrameter, which is not something I usually do. But if I'm brainstorming a specific topic, I'll try and lean into meter to kind of constrain the poem and put limits on it, which can help me brainstorm and be more creative. And there's also enjambment where the lines spill over onto the next line. And this seems to give the poem a sense of urgency because um, you read it a little bit faster, which uh, mimics the urgency of the situation the apostles were in. There's a shift in pronouns, which I did not do on purpose, but the poem starts off with we, um, moves into I and my, and then ends with we and us again. Um, and I think that this shows how the apostles all have personal relationships with the Savior, but he's also saving all of them. Um, so he died for all of our sins for the entire world, but he also loves us as individuals and will minister to us as individuals. There is some personification, giving human and active qualities to the sky and the waves to make it seem that they're sneezing and weeping on purpose, um, which I think helps to convey Jesus's power, um, that the storm didn't stop by accident, but that the elements were actually bending to his will and choosing to heed his command. Um, using the language of my God to show um, the parallel to Jesus um, in his last few seconds. And this poem is kind of contrasting both his humanity and his divinity and showing that even though he has control over the elements, um, he is also someone who was mortal and had experienced fear. And this allows him to minister unto us. And then um, finally, in the last line, yet chooses still to walk with us conveying how much love Jesus does have for us. The walk is literal for his apostles. He spent time with them, although he really could have chosen to do anything during his time on earth. And it's also metaphorical for the rest of us as disciples, I'm kind of hearkening to that idea of footprints in the sand in that famous poem. So those are, um, yeah, those are some takeaways from this poem and just kind of talking about how this process is similar to that of Revolution. Thank you so much, Alixa. That was great. That was just what I was hoping you would do. Um, okay, I gotta share my screen again. Let's see. I do this. Trying to figure out how to do this. Sorry, guys, just a sec. Is it already shared? Are you seeing my slides? <laughs> Let's see. Disappeared. Okay, okay. I got it, I got it. I think I got it. Let's do this. There we go, yes. There we go. All right, let's skip down to where we were. Sorry about that, guys. I was just so distracted by that great poem. Okay, so another story that I want to talk about today is um, the miracle related of um, Jesus and then Peter walking on the water. So let's go ahead and read this story first. And in the fourth watch of the night, which we know is between about 3 and 6 a.m., so darkest of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. This is after um, after the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Everybody was just swarming all over Jesus, as you can imagine. And um, it was just so crowded 
that he sent his disciples off into the water um, on a ship onto the lake. And um, he took some time, again, to have a little retreat. Um, but uh, the wind came up and the water became choppy. And um, so back to verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Let's look at some particular places in this story. Um, the, the disciples were frightened. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make clear whether they were frightened because they saw a figure that they didn't recognize coming towards them or whether they recognized him but were frightened because he was doing something really surprising and unexpected. But um, I think it's ironic that the thing that they are afraid of seeing this figure coming towards them is the very thing that could most save them. And I think sometimes we do that too, where we're afraid of something that actually is going to be a good thing in our lives. Elder Holland said, one of the grand ironies of the gospel is that the very source of help and safety being offered us is the thing from which we may in our mortal short-sightedness flee. For whatever the reason, I have seen investigators run from baptism. I have seen elders run from a mission call. I have seen sweethearts run from marriage. And I have seen young couples run, run from the fear of families and the future. Too often, too many of us run from the very things that will bless us and save us and soothe us. Too often we see gospel commitments and commandments as something to be feared and forsaken. So what is our response when we see something unexpected coming towards us, when life doesn't go as planned? Adam Miller says, life is a question. It's the very nature of life to pose as a question. So how are we responding to the questions life is posing us? Are we willing to step out of the boat, out of our own paradigms and treasured worldviews, so that we can see the truth of what is coming towards us and discover what we ourselves are capable of when we trust the Lord. So as I said, it's not clear whether they recognized him or not, but Jesus sees their fear and speaks to them. He says, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. I notice that the phrasing of what Jesus says right here is exactly the same in all three accounts we have of this story which tells me that maybe this particular wording was memorable to all of the people who dictated this memory to those who wrote the scriptures. So I hear in Jesus's words, him teaching us that there may be a way to control our emotions, or at least to limit the effects of fear. It seems clear that fear is a barrier to something called good cheer. Mm -hmm. And Elder Ronald Rasband commented on this. We cannot have good cheer and be mired in fear. The two, cheer and fear, are mutually exclusive. To be of good cheer is to trust Jesus Christ when things don't work as we planned. It means to soldier on when difficult tasks 
and twists in life take us into unexpected directions when tragedy and hardship shatter our dreams. I noticed um, the two things that he focuses on when he's talking about trying to have good cheer are trust, trusting in the Lord, and action, soldiering on. I think um, soldiering on is maybe akin to what Adam Miller was talking about when he spoke of the um, religious practices that we can involve ourselves in and a sense of consecration. This is not the only place where the scriptures talk about fear and condemn it. One of my favorites is in 2 Timothy. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I like to look at these three things as being maybe helpful clues as to how we can decrease the effects of fear. Um, We can increase power. We can figure out what are the things I can do in this situation and do them. We can increase in love. Increasing in love for other people and for God maybe helps us to uh, see the situation a different way and not be so frightened of it, giving our focus on something other than ourselves. And we can increase in um, the soundness of our minds, which may be doing all things necessary to be mentally healthy. Sometimes that involves getting outside help, and sometimes it involves changing some of our practices in our life. Um, I think it's a good thing um, to be told that it may be possible to choose not to fear. Um, But I also think that it's important to to remember that God is not a God of guilt. I don't think he wants us to feel guilty about being afraid. I think he wants to admit to and accept our emotions and bring them to him and pour out our souls to him so that he can join us in um, what is bothering us and um, that we can invite him into the process of working through the fear. And sometimes it takes some time and that maybe we need to use the Savior um, to help us make friends with our fear and accept it before we're able to give it up. So let's look at Peter's response. He says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. I think it's it's interesting to notice that um, this this phrase, if it be thou, I think Peter is relying on the fact that it's Jesus who commanded him or who could invite him onto the water. And I feel the same. Sometimes I, I feel more confident doing something if I'm sure that it is something the Lord is asking me to do. Then Peter becomes afraid. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And I think it's interesting to know that it's not the wind that causes him to fall but his fear that it might. I'm wondering, does this sound familiar to you? Do you have fear um, in your life working on you in a similar way? I am like Peter, because I sometimes fear when I can't see the ground under me. Um, And that tells me that I'm maybe expecting too much that things will work out in a logical and a worldly way instead of God's way. Um, This reminds me of when Jesus um, reassured his disciples by saying, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. The world would have us be able to see the ground beneath us or be able to see the ways that we can move forward and where our next um, footsteps should go. But Jesus doesn't always give us that. His peace is a different kind of peace um, and not in the same way. I also appreciate the symbolism that it's when um, Paul or Peter took his eyes off of the Lord and directed them towards the wind that he began to falter. And I know for me, it's when I take my focus off the Lord and focus instead on the craziness of the world around me 
that I begin to succumb to the effects of fear. Um, I have to try to seek ways that I can turn my eyes back to the Lord and focus more strongly on Him. I'm wondering when you ask yourself um, about the fears in your life, if there's something that jumps to your mind, if you consider ways you can refocus on the Savior um, instead of on the things that are frightening you. I hope that when you ask the questions in your life, the Spirit will whisper to you and give you ideas about these things. So in this story about um, Peter walking on the water, where is your poem? Where do you enter the story? I think we are all trying to walk on water or reaching or sinking or watching someone else do these things. And I hope that you can find yourself somewhere in the story and learn something that God would have you know. Um, as I tried to put myself in Peter's shoes um, to uh, write a poem about this, um, to choose a moment in the story where I felt like there was a poem, I thought about how Peter must have looked back on the situation years later, um, how maybe he kind of writhed in regret about taking his eyes off the Savior. But I also thought about how um, over the course of a life, we learn to be a little bit more tolerant of our own growth process. And so I imagine that maybe he got to a point where he could sort of forgive himself for faltering and learn from it and just rejoice in having had that opportunity. So here's the poem that I wrote about this story. Peter is still walking on water. At first, it was simply the huge gasping ha of joy, like a crowd rising to its feet, like a sudden haul of fish in a net that was empty moments before, a surge of power springing him into space, the thought of a landing wholly absent, thought itself wholly absent, no sense even of self at all, only the moment, the moonlight, and that familiar, strange, beloved face that promised everything, only that. Years later, in the moments of sealing, staring before sleep, he would tell himself the story, walk himself through each moment, the ball and bluster of wild wind and water, and then the impossible coming towards him, arms outstretched. It was the future approaching and all it promised, a peace that brought a different upheaval, upending everything he thought he knew about the world, about himself. In reliving and reliving that moment, he had learned to forbid himself the writhing regret, force his mind away from the flounder, the drenching disappointment of falling short, that wet hoist back into the boat, had learned that it did no one any good to carry their own earlier selves on their backs through life. No, it was not that shame which kept him awake. Instead, it was this. What in that moment had he felt beneath his feet? What had he stepped on? Had his soul slapped slippery surface or sunk two inches down? Had he tiptoed or stomped or danced? He cast and cast again his mind into his feet, replaying, replaying, searching, imagining, but nothing, nothing, nothing but that shining face, that outstretched hand. So I have a testimony of the, the Savior walking on water towards us and reaching out his hands. 
I have a testimony that it takes a moment of jumping out of the boat and getting wet and maybe some suffering, but that he is there and he is always walking towards us. Um, I know he is walking towards you too, and I pray that you can see the way that his hands are outstretched to you. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, Alexa, are you yes there? Thank you. Yes. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this lovely day. We thank Thee for the opportunity to come together and learn together um, from scriptures and from art. Please bless us that we'll be able to uh, take the inspiration that we've gained today and apply it into our daily lives and be able to grow closer to thee. Please give us all the courage and the faith to be able to step out of the boat. We love thee, dear Father, and only ask for these things. In the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, amen. 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 You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.